Uh, We're going to take now uh, a a moment to hear God's word spoken to us through his word, and then we'll hear it from the preaching of the word. So to read the scriptures, we have Rosanna Locke. Our reading today is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. We are finishing up our series on justice and mercy today, and I want to put you in a room. We had a member of our congregation uh, a couple of months ago be put in a somewhat tumultuous and stressful situation. Uh, She had a relative. get sick, need surgery. She took that relative to the hospital for surgery and frustrated with the fact that they were not allowed to stay with the relative during the surgery. Uh, actually, don't know if it's a she, she or he, waited in the waiting room for hours. This person wants to remain anonymous. But I want you now to put yourself in their shoes. You've got a stressful day. You've got to take someone. You're not allowed to go into surgery with that family member that you've taken and you are put in a waiting room for hours. How would you spend those hours? Well, I know what I would do. I would uh, whip out my iPhone. I would start perusing social media. I would check my emails. I'd probably get them done. If I'd had enough foreplanning to know that I wouldn't be in the surgery room with her, uh, with the person, I would have probably also brought my laptop. Uh, But now let me change the story. What if in that room you knew that there was a man facing the last year of his life? What if you knew in that room there was a story of serious and heartbreaking drug addiction and other needs? What if you knew that was in the room? Would that, would that change how those hours in that waiting room would be spent? Here's the question. What would it take to get you and me off our phones, off our laptops, and into the waiting room to minister to those needs. What would it take? This parable helps you and I figure out what it takes. Because if we're honest with ourselves, 
we'd probably locate ourselves on the phone and the laptop in the waiting room. But here, Jesus helps us to understand something about what it means to love our neighbor and to show mercy and justice. This parable helps us to understand why we struggle with this and gives us some pointers on how to prevail in this. Why we struggle and how we prevail. And in so doing, it tells us to do, I think, four things. It tells us many things, and we'll get to that. But it tells us at least four things. Firstly, know your heart. Secondly, admit the cost. Thirdly, change the question. And fourthly, find Jesus in the story. Admit your heart. Admit the cost. Change the question. Find Jesus in the story. The first two are about why we struggle. The last two are about how to prevail. Why we struggle, the first two. Firstly, know your heart. This is the exchange with the lawyer. A lawyer stands up to question Jesus about what the law really means and how he is to inherit eternal life. Now, this this lawyer is not a lawyer like we have in our modern-day world. What is meant here is a lawyer in the Jewish law, an expert, a religious elite. And Jesus responds to his question, how do I inherit eternal life, with a question, What does the law say? And he summarizes the law in a beautiful way, a way that the Shema has, a way that that Jesus himself agreed with, and it's this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus agrees with them. He commends him for it. And then the lawyer asks another question, wishing to justify himself. Now, in, in, in in the Greek there, it probably means wishing to justify himself in front of the audience. It could mean wishing to justify himself before God, but probably in front of the people around him, he says, and who is my neighbor? This is actually a quick snapshot into where our human heart goes, isn't it? We say to ourselves, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, especially those of us who are Christian. We've heard Jesus say this. This is part of his great command. But that standard is so high. That level of love, to love my neighbor as myself, is too thorough. It's too hard. So let me shrink the scope at least of who my neighbor is so I don't have to do that really hard loving to too many people. You see, here's the first reason we struggle is because of our own hearts. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to be out of our comfort zone. We don't want to pay too much because in our heart, we're self-absorbed. We're self-promoting. We're self-focused. We're selfish. And so we want to promote and pursue our own pleasure. We're hardwired for that, for our own comfort. We're hardwired for our own pleasure. We are hardwired for these things. Lead singer for YouTube, Bono, was asked in an interview, what are the major obstacles for you in your public advocacy work for, for helping the poor and relieving public debt in all of these poorer countries? You want to help end world poverty, what's the greatest obstacle? Was it government bureaucracy? Was it distrust of the poorer nations? Was it corruption? Was it implicit racism from the developed world? This was his answer. Now the human heart is greedy. It will use religion, color, or anything else to justify its greed. Blame the human heart. Jesus knows this. He knows our hearts, and when he hears the lawyer trying to justify himself and shrink the scope of who a neighbor is, he tells a story to tell all of us 
not only what it means to love our neighbor, but to reveal to all of us where our human heart naturally goes. So he tells this story describing a man on the road to Jericho. And this man is a, a certain man. It's, it's every man. He's deliberately generic so that the audience would find themselves in his shoes. They could identify with him. But if he's going on the road from Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Jericho, to a Jewish person, implicitly he's Jewish. He's a Jewish every person that they can identify with. And the man gets beaten and robbed on the Jericho road stripped of his clothes and beaten, left for dead. Now this is a story all these hearers would have been familiar with because the road to Jericho was a dangerous road. It was a winding, narrow road. It dropped 22, more than 2,200 feet in about 18 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was stony, arid, dangerous. It was a perfect place for bandits to wait because you had to go slow where they could ambush you easily. And one of the tricks of the bandits, apparently, in those days was to put a person down looking beaten and bloody so that you would stop, get off your animal. You often had a horse or probably a donkey. You get off your animal to help them, and then they would come out of ambush and get you. And so here is a man beaten on the side of the road, but it could be a trick. In fact, in those days, in Jewish minds, those hills were filled with Samaritan thieves and bandits who did exactly this to Jewish people especially on the way up to Jerusalem to the feasts because they would have money for offerings. And so then here we enter the story and Jesus invites us to see ourselves as this everyman, this Jewish man from Jerusalem. But then there's a twist. Jesus tells the story of a priest and a Levite who come upon this man. And and the Greek grammar here is is, is a bit interesting. It's like, and and a priest came and, and a Levite came. Kind of putting into your expectation that these two people, these two kinds of people, these two offices, religious elites, they had this by, this was an inherited title from family inheritance, specially trained, supposed to be about helping the Jewish people. Of anybody, these two would stop. Of course, the Levite and the priest would help him. Uh, but what do they do? They walk right on by. Now Jesus is inviting us to see that we're not the man on the road beaten. Not just him. We're also the priest and the Levite who see people like that and walk right on by. You see, the question that they would ask as they see him is the question you and I would ask. What will happen to me if I stop and help him? They do a cost-benefit analysis. This is a dangerous road. They might be waiting in hiding. If I stop and stoop down, I'm vulnerable. What will happen to me if I stop and help this man? And what Jesus has done in putting the priest and the Levi into the story is letting us see that our hearts are like the lawyer's. Our hearts are like the priests and Levites. We're not just the everyman beaten and robbed. We're meant to feel them too. Admit, your heart doesn't want to move toward mercy and justice because your heart wants to focus on you. Now the second thing that happens here and the priest and the Levite highlight it is you don't just admit your heart and where it tends to go. You have to admit the cost of mercy. You see, when they do this cost-benefit analysis, 
So they, then they shrink and say, he's not my neighbor, I can move on. What they're doing is saying that the cost is higher than my margin for cost. Yeah? And we do this as well, by the way. Brian Lee, our um, liturgist, pointed me to a recent social experiment using seminary students, of all people, at Princeton University. They were given an assignment, which was to speak at a nearby building, and they had to go to that nearby building. And then a man was placed on the ground between, in the pathway between the two buildings, moaning, appearing to be in great suffering. And there were at least two or three kinds of groups. One group was said, you've got to get there reasonably quick. Another group was said, you've got to get there right now. Another group was told, you're late. And the interesting thing is, the group with the least amount of hurry stopped all, almost two-thirds of the time. But the group in the most hurry stopped just about 10% of the time. A couple of them even stepped right over the man on their way. What's going on? Well, the study wants to say that getting busy, being in a hurry, is a great obstacle to doing mercy. And aren't we a culture that is addicted to being busy and in a hurry? But I want to push deeper because I was a seminary student and I could relate to this. Here's the irony. Guess what they were supposed to teach, at least half of this control group? They were supposed to teach... (laughs) The parable of the Good Samaritan. You see, at the deepest level of identity, longing and desire, a seminary student wants to be known as a good teacher. It's not just the hurry. It's that selfish human heart that wants its comfort, wants its reputation, wants its pride. And so what happens is it becomes about us and our needs fairly quickly when push comes to shove. We like mercy, but we don't love mercy enough. We don't love it enough to count the cost. We don't love it enough to stop doing that quick cost-benefit analysis and often saying, I don't have the time, the energy, the cost is too high. You see, this parable, anyone listening would know, you'd have to stop, get off your mount, Stoop down, be vulnerable. Then you'd have to bring them somewhere. It doesn't have any credit cards. It's not a credit card society. You'd have to pay for their lodging. You'd probably have to pay for their medical help. You might get the money back, but they're a stranger. All kinds of costs. Time, money, personal safety. It's all there. Isn't it easier if you're a priest or a Levite to say, no one's looking. I'm just going to keep going right on by. And don't we do this. We just go right on by. Because the barriers to being involved in mercy, to to really loving our neighbor, are really our heart and the cost. And we need to admit that. And we need to begin to plan for that. And now we get to the turning point of our story because another man appears on the road. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's not an esteemed Jewish leader trained by birth to help people. He's a Samaritan, the sworn enemy of the Jews. Samaritans, for those of you who don't know, were people who settled in the land of Israel after Israel was conquered and depopulated by uh, conquering imperial forces, particularly the Babylonian conquest in the um, 
sort of starting in the 600s and up into the, the late 500s. Samaritans took that land that was emptied out and resettled on it. They were a different race. They had a different religion. It was a, a, a corrupted form of Judaism, so Jewish people thought of them. Ancient ancestral lands taken by this foreign people. Heretics, religiously. You see what happens? These two races resented each other, often hated each other. Enemies they were. So here's a man on the road. Every man. A victim of robbers. But here comes a man who's a victim of Jewish racism who's a victim of Jewish disdain and social marginalization, perhaps even economic discrimination, here is a man who comes. He has every reason to pass the injured man by, unlike the priest and the Levite, but he doesn't. It says when he saw him, he had compassion. In the New Testament, uh, scholars who translate this, uh, Joel Green, for example, in his commentary on the book of Luke, says the Greek word here is better rendered, he was moved with compassion. Because the word itself means to have a great affection or amount of love or compassion. This is the turning point of the story and the beginning of the glimpse of where we can get the power to prevail over our own hearts and the cost. It's the power of gospel compassion. The ability to see past the things that divide you from the man on the road and to see in that man on the road there but for the grace of God is me. This is a person with the same kind of dreams as me. Same kind of hopes. Same kind of family. Same kind of everything. If I was there how would I want someone to love me? Love your neighbor as yourself. That Samaritan got there. How did he do it? Martin Luther King Jr., on the night before he was assassinated, gave one of his most famous speeches. We call it the I've been to the mountaintop speech. In it, he talked about the cost of doing justice and enduring in the civil rights struggle despite personal cost. And A weary crowd of black people and protesters and civil rights advocates were there. And this story of the Samaritan was part of that speech. Hear his words. You know, it is possible that the priest and the Levite looked down over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he'd been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them over there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? He reversed the question. That's what compassion does. It reverses the question. It changes the question. Not cost-benefit analysis, what will happen to me if I help, but what will happen to them if I don't? So here's the first answer. To prevailing over the inner obstacles in our own hearts. Reverse the question. Because when you do that, what will happen to them? If I don't help, you begin to answer the question the lawyer asked, who's my neighbor? Because the obvious answer that Jesus is constructing here 
And the main point of this parable is, everyone is my neighbor who is in need. I don't need to have them be part of my family. I don't need to have them be part of my friend network. I just need them to have a need. Even the enemy, even someone who's part of a society that marginalizes and rejects me, even that person, if they're in need, they're my neighbor. You see, when you reverse the question of cost, you begin to gain the power to love mercy, not just like it. What will it cost them if I don't stop? So the Samaritan does stop. And he does indeed bear the cost that we've talked about. He risks being attacked and gets off his mount. He binds the wounds as best he can on the spot. He puts the injured man onto his animal. Again, in context, probably a donkey or a mule. He takes the injured man to an inn, offers to pay whatever it takes for the man to rest up and heal. Think about that. Think of the vulnerability. You're down. You're physically vulnerable. You take the time to bind his wounds. You extend the vulnerability. You take the time to find an inn for him. You, you lose time. You pay the proprietor, however much it's going to take to to give the man the time to heal, and you are exposing yourself to vulnerability from that man conning you as well. At every point, the Samaritan has made himself vulnerable. At every point, the cost he is bearing is more than I, and probably you, would typically want to bear. He is no priest, this Samaritan. He is no Levite. He's probably a merchant. He's not part of a ruling religious class. And yet... Everyone is his neighbor. Now, Jesus has shown you and I by showing the lawyer that the scope of God's love is everyone. And the depth of God's love is to do whatever it takes to help that person. That's a really wide scope. That's a really deep depth. Matter of fact, it's too deep and too wide for most of us. Almost none of us are ready to do what the Good Samaritan did. We're not. The standard's too high. If we're honest, the standard of love of neighbor that Jesus just illustrated is beyond us. And remember that this passage goes to the end where Jesus is back with the lawyer in the final scene. Jesus asks him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. He doesn't give an inch on the scope of who is my neighbor and on the depth of love that means love my neighbor. So, if you're like me, you'll feel a little bit like this. Well, thank you, Jesus. You've answered the lawyer, but all you've done is make me feel like I get the lawyer. This parable defeats me. Jesus, you will say to me, Do likewise, and I will say to you, I don't have that kind of compassion. I don't have that kind of love. I cannot keep your law this perfectly. How will I ever inherit eternal life? I started this parable smirking at the lawyer for his self-righteousness, and now I'm joining this lawyer with my head down in despair. Yeah, and it's okay if you're there because of the final thing. The final thing is you need to find Jesus in this story. You see, Jesus is telling this story to the lawyer, but is he in this story? 
Because the story invites us to consider, could anyone actually be that good of a Samaritan? Who's this caring? Who's this selfless? Who would do this? Is there anyone like this in the world? And once you ask that question, you're staring the answer in his face. Because it's Jesus himself who is actually the good Samaritan. Who came, I'm going to ask you and me, to live and make their home in a new place that was not their actual home? The Son of God, Jesus. John says the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were created by Him. And then he says later, and the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. That's Jesus. God himself left his home and made his home with us. And how was he treated when he resettled with us? Just like a Samaritan. He was rejected. John 1.11, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. Isaiah 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. Jesus himself said in John 15, verse 25, the word that is written in the law, their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He was hated even more than Samaritans are hated. But he's the one who got down off his donkey and made himself vulnerable for us. In the last week of his life, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill Zacharias prophecy that your king your final king would come on the foal of a donkey and he entered Jerusalem for the last time doing that and then he got off that donkey and he picked up a cross a few days later and he walked himself to his own death and execution but now listen to the language of the parable because we were initially invited to see ourselves as the man who got beaten it says he was beaten he was stripped And he was left for dead. Do you know anyone who was beaten and stripped and left for dead? Yes, we do. Jesus Christ, God himself, the ultimate good Samaritan, didn't just come into a hostile land, allow himself to be rejected. He didn't just get off of his donkey to help us. He became the one who the scriptures say was stripped and beaten as he was arrested and interrogated and tortured, and then finally hung on a cross three quarters dead. But here's the difference. He did it willingly. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said, he began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He decided to be the good Samaritan by himself being the one who was beaten and robbed and left for dead and stripped naked. He did that for you and for me. And on that cross, he took our guilt. He took our moral debt before God. He took our selfishness and he paid for it. Willingly, the good Samaritan became the one beaten. He exchanged his life for us. He took the guilt of sin upon himself to heal us. He did whatever it took. When you see Jesus in this story, the great Samaritan, the final Samaritan, 
who became the broken Jew, beaten and stripped and robbed, that he might heal you and me. Then the compassion of God, the compassion of God begins to pour into your heart. And you begin to get filled with that compassion. And when you are filled with that compassion, His Spirit gives you the capacity to begin to act like Jesus and the Good Samaritan. And when you begin to see that all of your life is a road, it may not look as dangerous as Jericho, but it's a Jericho road because there are people in need all around you that you can begin to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's go back to the hospital. We're in the waiting room. That congregant had asked for people to pray for them for this event. And as they waited in the lobby, they noticed the people around them. As the hours went by, it says, this congregant got to speak with Michael and found out that Michael is dying of pancreatic cancer. And he's trying to make his last year a good one. And so they got to encourage him and let him know that he is being prayed for by a group of Christian friends. And he told them that he'd been trying to be cool about it, act agnostic, that it just didn't matter, but he isn't really. And he thanked her for caring for him and offering these words of encouragement. Also spoke with the father of a young woman, 30 years old and a drug addict. This father had scoured the underbelly of Toronto for the previous 10 days until he found her and was waiting for her to be released into his care. That father got encouragement by that congregant to seek God's help. And he replied he was a lapsed Catholic. And he was encouraged. That congregant spoke with a 21-year-old girl with multiple transplant problems and who was in terrible pain and encouraged her. And then to an old, confused Syrian woman and reached out to her. This is the comment of the congregant. What a day prepared by God for me. We can do it. We have these moments on the Jericho Road all around us. If we will, firstly, application, admit our heart. Mercy and justice are a battle. They're not natural to our self-focused human hearts. Admit that and go to God with that. Secondly, admit the cost. It's going to cost time and energy, emotional energy, money to be available on the road to help people, to open our eyes, to take time. If we don't have any margin for it, we won't find margin for it. Like the Princeton student stepping over the man lying there or like the priest and the Levite, we will just pass on by Admit the cost and start planning for it. Reverse the question. What will happen to them if I don't stop? Ask for the power to stop focusing on ourselves so relentlessly. And finally, find Jesus in the story. Jesus invites you to realize that Jesus unconditionally had this much compassion on you that he gave himself for you, that he stepped off the mount and he climbed onto the cross for you. Then gratitude and compassion for others will spring up in your soul. And the degree to which this compassion grips you is the degree to which you will be freed from the habits of the heart towards selfishness and the fear of the heart towards the cost. And you will be opened to be able to freely pour yourself for others. Pray for open eyes. 
Pray for an open heart. Meditate upon the love of Jesus for you. Be free to love your neighbor. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. And I pray now that you would help us to be this kind of people in this kind of world and meet these kind of needs for these kind of neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to answer just a couple of questions and we will move on to the song of response. Hi there. If you're a complete opposite of the spectrum, if you really just enjoy helping others and others have taken your, your kindness for granted multiple times, it doesn't stop, but you do feel cautious sometimes. What do you do? I agree with you. Um, don't stop. Keep going. Uh, if if, if it, there's a pattern of, of certain people taking it for granted, you can lovingly just mention, hey, you know, um, you don't seem to have a heart of gratitude and, and, and show them a pattern. And that may help. Enabling people in selfish behavior is not loving them. And so there's always a room for loving, gracious, kind confrontation or correction or exhortation. How do you balance giving help and feeling guilty about wanting to help everyone? Seeing the need, a lot of the people in need in Toronto. So here's, here's one of the issues that I get every time we talk about mercy and justice. Because... We live in such a connected world, so technologically connected. We know the needs not just of all kinds of people in Toronto, but we also know the needs all around the world. And so it's going to take more selection. What this is talking about is when a need is right in front of you, and it's in your personal kind of daily habitation, that's when you should meet it. Also, when you hear God speaking to you like Shen was spoken to by God, go with it. But it doesn't mean you, have to, you can't meet every single need. Because we have a worldwide church. The church is over a billion people. Let the church begin to meet a bunch of those needs. Great question. And finally, this is the last one I will answer. I'll answer the rest individually. Your comment on the busyness of our lives hit hard. How do we practically make margin in our lives if we feel trapped in a never-ending rat race? Great question. First thing, take a look at your nights. Now, it's in COVID, so some of your nights are maybe gone in new ways because you're just trying to have some kind of social interaction. I get that. But if you take a look at your planned times of interaction, almost all of them are for personal socialization, personal need meeting. How about sticking into your schedule one block a week, a Saturday, a Sunday, an afternoon? You're going to go for a walk. You're going to pray. You're going to just... You're just going to go check in with certain people that you know need help. You're just going, you know, you're going to go wherever there may be a need. You're just going to, and begin to pray and begin to look for opportunities. Just start where you go. Great question. But start putting blocks of planning into your week and into your month. Because if you don't plan it, it rarely happens. It's hard to live a life of mercy and justice when you have no proactive intentionality. And so think about how to do that. I'm thinking about it. It's hard for me as well. Great questions. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your grace and your goodness to us. I pray you would help us to realize we are all on the Jericho Road. It may not look as dangerous, but it is filled with opportunities to meet needs. And we pray that you would help us to admit our heart, admit the cost, change the question, and find the freedom by finding you in the story. In Christ's name, amen.